Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Our guest for the episode, Dr. Arnold Rackman. Dr. Rackman is a licensed psychologist, trained psychoanalyst, and fellow of the American Group Psychotherapy Association. He has been called the heart and soul of the American psychoanalytic community, working to rediscover Shandor Ferenczi, has written over eight books on the topic, and the one we're discussing today is... Elizabeth Severn, The Evil Genius of Psychoanalysis, published 2018 by Rutledge, part of their Psychoanalytic Inquiry book series. Dr. Rackman, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, I really uh, wanted to discuss your work for a long time. Um, So you've written a lot. What was it about Severn that you... What motivated you to write about her, to give her her own book in in the history of the Budapest School? Okay, well, uh, first, uh, in order to to respond to that question, I just want to give you a little story about how I discovered her myself. Okay, so um, here's here's the story. Uh, A a colleague of mine at the postgraduate center where I trained, called me up one day and said, Arnold, um, uh, Elizabeth Severin's papers, uh, and I knew that um, she was talking about someone who was Sando Ferenzi's most controversial and uh, well-known analysand were available. Did I want to buy them? So I had been thinking for years and years, if I could discover some unknown treasure of forensics uh, that I could bring to light. And so this was like uh, a gift from heaven, this phone call. And I said, uh, her name was Hannah Caput. She's now unfortunately deceased. I said, Hannah, yes, I'm very interested. So uh, a day or two later, I get a phone call from Peter Lipsky, L-I-P-S-K-I-S, who was uh, the literary executor of Elizabeth Severin's daughter, Margaret Severin, and she had deceased, and Peter had been storing Elizabeth Severin's papers in a warehouse in Vancouver, British Columbia, where Margaret had retired to, and uh, Peter and Margaret Severin her daughter had become very good friends. So we uh, talked about it. And um, on that phone call, I told him I would I would purchase them. And from then on, uh, he and I uh, consulted with each other. I went to Vancouver uh, a, a year or so later, went to the warehouse. When I got to the warehouse, I was, I almost passed out because it was a wooden building. And so all these papers were being stored in a wooden wooden building. 
And I said to myself, oh my God, if I don't get these out of here, there's a chance they could all go up in smoke. And so I told him, I'm going to take them. Let's get, let's get them out of here. And he started sending them to me. And I started um, getting them. And then uh, I made a contact with Nellie Thompson, who's the uh, archivist of the New York Psychoanalytic Library and Institute. And she very generously uh, arranged for me to store them at the New York Institute, Psychoanalytic Institute. And so, and then she was very generous also in her, I asked her how to, to help me restore them, you know, because they were in all kinds of boxes and in all, and so she taught me how to restore some of them. And then I spent several years um, doing that. And then I started to work on writing about it. And so I thought Elizabeth Severin, as I read the papers, her letters to her daughter, the daughter's letters to her, um, uh, the books that she had written, the unpublished work that she had done, some of the material that she saved about her life. I said, uh, this has to be published and we have to rediscover Elizabeth Severin's importance for psychoanalysis because she did make a, a contribution and no one knows about her. I had, I, in, in my studies, her name was never mentioned. Of course, uh, as, uh, as you know, Christopher, Ferenzi's name was never mentioned as I write in my books either. When I study psychoanalysis, I never heard his name. I discovered him in the middle 1970s in, in the library of the Postgraduate Center when I had read <clears throat> a reference to him in some book on um, activity in psychoanalysis. So that's how I got to, to writing about Severin, and I spent several years writing the book, and then it was published thanks to um, Joe Lichtenberg, who's editor-in-chief of the um, Psychoanalytic Inquiry book series for Rutledge. So this, um, the, the, the discovery of the papers and of her, and as you said, the names just never mentioned. Never. Um, never. Um, and uh, and even um, in when I read, you know, uh, the the clinical diary, yes, she's you know she's got an initials. Well, she's, R. she's mentioned in the clinical diary as R N, R N, the case study of R N, the case study of R N, and and also when the clinical diary, which was also you know hidden, we'll get into all of that. She's discussed as the, the patient. Um, and as this book shows, there's there's just so much more to her. Right. I want to, in a sense, go to the let's go to sort of the the end of the book and where this ends up. Your commitment to not having um, the death by silence. You've you've given the papers to the Library of Congress. Oh yes, uh, that I've uh, after I finished writing the the book, I uh, made an agreement. Uh, with the Library of Congress to donate the papers to them. So they, and then since then, 
I've done something else. I so there there's a the Library of Congress has the originals and a Xerox copy of these papers, some of them, not all of them. I've also made arrangements to uh, send them to the Sandor Forenzi house that was established several years ago in Budapest, Hungary, with Judas Mejeros, who's um, the president of the Sandor Forenzi Society, as the uh, as the as the recipient. So they're going to be in two places: they're at the Library of Congress and at the Forenzi House in Budapest. And in the Library of Congress, you say you make sure that they are that there's full access to them; they're not restricted at all. Yeah. Well, you. You you know this the story with um, the fraud archives when uh, Jeffrey Masson uh, had that um, run in with Kurt Eisler. You know about mm-hmm. that. Yes. So um, I didn't want that to happen, and so using that as a historical precedent, I said to the I gave the papers to the Library of Congress. Um, uh, uh, and I told them that as soon as they received them, they should be completely available to any scholar who wishes to use them with no restrictions whatsoever. And you're doing that because, and you say in the book, you address the 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 death by silence. So can you talk yeah, about yeah. that? Yes, if you don't mind, I'll just give a brief uh, uh, outline about that. Mm-hmm. In, in in the 1980s, uh, the late Esther Menninger, who was a very well-known uh, psychoanalyst in America and was one of the last people to train at the Vienna Psychoanalytic Institute, she her analyst was Anna Freud, <clears throat> and she graduated there in the, uh, the middle 1930s. And I used to meet on a regular basis. We were friends, colleagues. And uh, we used to discuss psychoanalysis because we both were, we both considered ourselves to be dissidents in the field. She took a journey from first studying with Anna Freud, then getting interested in the work of Otto Rank, and then becoming a self-psychologist. And so, um, and she was uh, a professor and um in the postdoctoral program at NYU here in New York. Uh, I've, I'm also connected there. Uh, and so she and I had a lot in common. And we put together a concept called, it, in German, it's called Todschweigen. And the English translation is death by silence. Todschweigen, death by silence. And we took it to to mean that traditional psychoanalysis has, through the years, used silencing dissidents uh, like Ferenczi, like Severin, like Ronk, like Adler, like Jung, to um, keep them out of the mainstream of what they consider to be a traditional psychoanalysis. So it's a concept, and and the, the method is to ban their works from study, 
in psychoanalytical institutes not to publish their work in psychoanalytic journals and not to uh, teach about them. So if you look at many, I haven't done a recent survey, but I would bet you dollar to donuts that if you looked at the traditional psychoanalytic institutes in the United States and other countries, that a forensi uh, is not taught in most of them to this day. Well, to this day, and and I went to a non-traditional one. I went to an institute called Modern Psychoanalysis. Now, that's given the name in the 50s. Right. Which, when, and I was never, Ferenzi was not on one syllabus over basically 15 total years. And yet, some of the ideas, techniques, ways of thinking about treatment are his. They are yeah. absolutely his Com- completely. I'm, I'm, I think I said to you, I, I'm floored that he's not honored and taught. Um, it's, yes, as well, I said, it's still. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And But Christopher, there's one exception. Bob, Robert Marshall, Dr. Robert Marshall, who's, who teaches and who's an, a distinguished member of the Modern Psychoanalytic Institute, um, is very has always been interested in frenzy and he wrote about him and he also asked me on several occasions to come in and talk to the class that he was teaching about frenzy so he's robert marshall is one of the exceptions yes i've i've since discovered that he had um uh stopped teaching when i started there so i missed him actually the last class that he taught was like a year before i started um, and yes, he is the exception. I've now gone back and read his work. Um, and, and I now work with him in supervision. So I'm, I'm getting it, but it, it, and it's wonderful that he's a champion, but to have only one person in an yeah, entire well, institute, that's not. <laughs> so, well, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole book that I'm planning to write. Uh, as soon as I finish the work I'm doing now, and the book is going to be called, Death by Silence, parenthesis Todschweigen, a traditional psychoanalysis, silencing of dissidents. And I'm going to go into this whole issue of uh, not allowing uh, non-traditional voices to have a place in, in mainstream psychoanalysis. Good. So that'll be our, our next interview when that comes out. So let's get back to the book at hand then. Um, tell us who, uh, before we get to, to Severn, when she goes into to Ferenczi and, and their analysis, which is is crucial, right. who is she outside of that? What is her, her story? How does well, she grow up? She has a very interesting story, you know, that I pieced together from these bits and pieces that were in the her papers. And so I'll try to give you a, uh, a summary of this. Um, she grew up, she's from, she was from the Midwest of the United States. She grew up, unfortunately, her childhood and uh, young and uh, adolescence and young adulthood was um, uh, strewn with psychological and um, physical trauma 
due to her father, who, according to the uh, material that I've gathered from her papers, was a psychopath. And he sexually molested her. He um, emotionally uh, abused her uh, and um, treated her um, uh, as badly as a human being can be treated. So she grew up obviously having serious emotional problems as a result. It's very, uh, it's very difficult to gain a, a perspective on who her mother was. In, in the material that I have from her papers, I do, I do not get uh, any kind of information except the inference that I make that the mother was probably a um, observer to the trauma uh, and allowed it to happen, but did not do anything to intervene. So she obviously was under the power and control of her husband. Um, uh, so Elizabeth grew up, um, but she had some very s- significant internal strength as came, as, as was demonstrated in her analysis with forensic, but she, um, she was, um, her daughter was uh, taken away from her by relatives. I think she was hospitalized, uh, several times during her early adult and uh, hood. And uh, then she reunited with her daughter, Margaret. And um, Margaret became a world-renowned modern dancer of the 1920s and 30s in the United States and Europe. And uh, traveled in Europe in a dance company by herself while her mother lived in the United States. Elizabeth, um, um, originally, um, uh, when she divorced her husband, uh, sold encyclopedias. And one of the things that she, she realized is that when she went and to sell these encyclopedias, the people she was talking to would uh, keep her talking to them over an ex- extended period of time, and she realized that she had some quality of being able to talk and make and maintain meaningful relationships. She found herself one day uh, in a a beauty parlor getting her hair washed, and she overheard uh, them saying that the um, massage therapy people who they had hired excuse me, couldn't come in. And she just blurted out, well, I could do that. And she started doing the massage therapy for the uh, uh, beauty parlor. It became very successful. She had lots of clients. She she eventually went on, out on her own and had her own practice. And from this kind of very unusual, creative, and assertive beginning, she developed herself into a therapist of, in those days, of course, and now we're talking about the early 1900s up until uh, the 1920s, there was no training, you know, school for this kind of therapy. 
And so she pieced it together by um, her own creative instincts and capacities, her intellect, and she read. Uh, she was self-taught. She read books on psychology. Uh, she was influenced by Mary Aker uh, Eddy of the Christian Science Movement, who she she found very compatible because it was all about self-reliance and self-independence. And uh, she put that all together and became a therapist. And she had a very active and successful practice using all kinds of innovative ideas and practices to treat people who had somatic illnesses, psychosomatic illnesses, and... Um, but yet she still suffered from the psychological effects of the traumas that she had been had suffered as a child. And she was always interested. Another quality of hers was she was always interested in, in, in trying to understand herself and work on herself. So she was in several analysis, including one with Otto Rank, but she didn't find any real um uh peace or or uh, or cure in these and Rank finally sent her to Sando Forenzi and she was in analysis with Forenzi from 1928 to 1933 when he died of pernicious anemia and uh, so her she became an analyst in 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 what those days they used to call a training analysis in other words, you became an analyst by being in analysis with a well-known and fully established an analyst. And part of it was discussing analysis from a psychoanalytic theoretical point of view, as well as getting your analysis. So by the time uh, she finished, or she did, it was premature termination because Perenzi died. But um, Forenzi considered her to be an analytic candidate of his, and so she, as she did, and so uh, I say in the, the end of the, there's a chapter in the end of the book where she be, she could be considered a psychoanalyst, and I would say that she was one of the most important people in the field who along. Forenzi and she became like uh, uh, cooperative um, researchers in helping to establish an understanding of psychological disorder and the treatment of that in what they would, they both developed into what they call trauma analysis. Right. So let's, let's talk about that because the... The trauma analysis is called critically, uh, you talk about the, um, I think, Moroda critique. Yes. It's criticized as um, an analysis gone wrong, regression analysis, as all sorts of criticism, but you don't see it that way at all. You see it as a pioneering analysis of trauma. So what did they, what did they pioneer? Well, in my opinion... Forenzi, with the help of Severin, pioneered the uh, the diagnosis of trauma 
as a psychological disorder uh, that needed to be understood as a distinct entity of itself and needed to be understood as needing a new kind of therapeutic approach to what Freud was offering, which was the Oedipus complex theory of neurosis. So um, I I see Elizabeth Severin as a partner of Ferenczi, and I he did too, in my opinion, the, of of discovering that real trauma, actual trauma, whether it's emotional, physical, or interpersonal, is a distinct category of psychological disorder um, that has not been considered. Don't forget Freud's influence, which includes in contemporary times, was to believe that the Oedipus complex was the primary uh, psychological disorder for neurosis, and that the only way to to understand and treat um, neurotic disorders due to the Oedipal complex was to find the royal road to the unconscious, either through dreams, fantasies, interpretations, and what have you. And so once Freud moved from the seduction hypothesis, which ironically was the original um, theory of, of psychological disorder uh, that he had, uh, that started psychoanalysis and is, um, was outlined in his letters to Wilhelm Fleece in the, eight, the late 1800s, um, uh, he, he felt threatened when Ferenczi, with the help of Severin, developed what I consider to be one of the most important papers in the history of psychoanalysis, the confusion of tongues uh, between children and adults, and uh, saw it as a regression, Freud saw it as a regression back to the seduction hypothesis, which he abandoned for the Oedipus complex. And um, the analysis that occurred between Freud, between, excuse me, Ferenczi and, and um, Severin, was the, an, you can see it as a clinical experiment on how to treat trauma. So in order to treat trauma, they, they felt you had to go back to early childhood uh, and help the person re-experience the trauma. So it goes beyond interpretation. In fact, interpretation in the, in the earlier stages of this kind of analysis actually interferes with understanding and treatment. You need to be what Ferenczi introduced as clinical empathy in 1928 in his paper on the elasticity of psychoanalytic technique. So you, instead of um, the Oedipus complex and interpretation, Severin and Ferenczi are talking about empathy and um, therapeutic regression, um, which later on was developed uh, by Michael Ballant, one of, I, I would say, Ferenczi, 
Ferenczi's most important student. Developed, but also, and again, still, um, the the echoes of condemning them go through. Um, uh, I'm thinking of Christopher Bolas, who wrote, when he finally wrote Catch Them Before They Fall, and in an interview about that book, he kept his work secret because he was afraid of being criticized as being a regression analyst. Who kept it silent? Uh, Bolas did when he was first doing it. Yeah, well, Bolas, interesting enough, that's a very interesting statement because that's exactly what happened to Forenzi. And Michael Ballant, in his, uh, in, in his work, um, The Basic Fault, says exactly that about Forenzi's work. In other words, Forenzi's Clinical Diary, another very important piece of work in the history of psychoanalysis, was suppressed. Uh, And Michael Ballant had the manuscript uh, with him and didn't bring it out. It was written in 1932. Forenzi's Clinical Diary is a day-by-day description of his interaction with uh, Elizabeth Severin as his analysis and, and several other people. And um, he, he did it without Freud's awareness. Freud never knew about it. Neither did any of the other traditional analysts. It, the only people who knew about it was his Hungarian colleagues, uh, like Michael Ballant. And it was a discussion of this new theory that um, trauma is a disorder that needed to be treated with a new methodology and that the new methodology was uh, very different from an Oedipal analysis. It was an analysis of trauma with therapeutic regression as one of its um, uh, methodologies and using what we now call non-interpretive methods as um, as the newer, more meaningful way to interact. So interpretation actually um, wasn't put aside, but it wasn't considered the golden mean as it is in uh, an Oedipal analysis. So that you had Bolas suffered what Forenzi suffered. He he. Any analyst, including today, if you were to come up with something that um, either criticizes the Oedipal framework or um, does not adhere to what is considered mainstream psychoanalysis, you'd have the same problem. So what is it that, um, for for people who don't know exactly what happened, uh, what is um, the mutual analysis? Because you say Severn knew what she needed in order to be cured, and she accuses Ferenczi of not analyzing his negative countertransference. So what does she ask him to do, and then what does he do? Okay, well, that's a very interesting... See, that's the most... Christopher, what you just put your hands on is the most controversial of everything, you know, of all the stuff. That, um, there's one other thing that was very controversial. I'll just name it, and then if you want to, we can talk about it after I finish talking about mutual analysis. And that is, the other issue is Freud uh, condemning Forenzi with the belief that he was sexually acting out with his analysands, which was not true. 
But if you want to talk about that later, I will. But let me first address mutual analysis. So here, there was a period in the analysis between Severin and Ferenczi where they reached what is called a therapeutic stalemate. She said that, and don't forget now, I'm, I, I alluded to this, but I'm going to just highlight this more, more uh, profoundly. Severin was a very intelligent, astute clinician who realized that Ferenczi had certain feelings towards her that he did not realize and were interfering with the analysis. She said to him, she actually accused him straight up, and she was very assertive, you know, which is, you know, uh, unusual for that time, uh, that pioneering time, and most times, you know, most analysands are more um, uh, willing to, I, I would, to use a more um, contemporary, they're willing to it, it submit to the analyst's power and control and status over them. She wasn't. So she said that their, their analysis was as a stalemate because Ferenczi had negative feelings about her as a woman or or as a person, and they were interfering with his being empathic with her. At first, he he denied it, and she persisted. And to his credit, he did not see her um, talking about his um, inadequate behavior as an analyst as a resistance. See, this was another very big change and a, and a big discovery. Forenzi did not take it as resistance and tried to empathically understand what Severin was saying to him so as to understand her subjective experience, not, not just to use what he thought was the understanding of the analysis. And so he struggled for over a year and she persisted in telling him that this is what he needed to do. And he finally agreed and he did it. And so for a period of time, they took turns analyzing each other. And she helped him retrieve his childhood, his childhood sexual abuse because he retrieved it he remembered it, and they analyzed it, and he worked it out in, to some extent. That's an amazing development, wouldn't you think? It's it's extraordinary, and um, and it was bene- it was mutually beneficial. Yes, and she and this and this uh, mutual analysis, um, um, although you know people now may still see it as too radical. And I think Moroda was talking about stuff like that, the, the mutual not, may see it as too radical. You could use it, though, if you understand that what happened between the two of them was that it was a complete change in the philosophy of clinical interaction between an analyst and an analysand. Instead of a one-person experience, it became a two-person experience. Instead of an analyzing analyst analyzing an analysand, it became an analyst 
and Nalasand contributing understanding to each other of what was happening in the analytic encounter. In my opinion, a remarkable step forward. For and which to this they don't day, credit. Yeah, and to this day, all the variations on traditional Freudian analysis, in my opinion, emerge from their, this it kind of interchange with Elizabeth Severin with Sandor Frenzy. In other words, um, the first it was object relations, then was interpersonal psychoanalysis, then was self-psychology, and then was relational analysis. All these new perspectives owe their beginning to Sando Ferenzi and Elizabeth Severin's interaction. And you also talk in the book that you think there are a certain number of Freud's cases that would have benefited from mutual oh, analysis. Oh, goodness. <laughs> I, I've, so I've gone over the case of Dora, Freud's first, he had there's, there's a series of five iconic cases that everyone refers to when they're talking about Freud's psychology. So there, there's a case of Dora, which her name was Ida Bauer. And then I've reanalyzed that. And then the case of the Wolfman. So I, 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 um, I'll just give you the case. I'll just talk about the case of the Wolfman because to me, it's very dramatic. Okay. The Wolfman was a, a, a Russian nobleman who, uh, came to analysis with, with Freud, um, in the, middle 1900s. And Freud, this is one of Freud's iconic cases, excuse me, and Freud used it um, to develop his theory of psychosexual development. And um, the, the case, Freud saw the Wolfman for a period of time, then he stopped, and then um, after Freud stopped, um, the Wolfman was actually analyzed by, by someone for the next 30 or 40 years because people, analysts would come to um, Europe and, and Vienna and, and analyze him in, in tribute to Freud. And because the Wolfman still uh, hadn't, hadn't been fully uh, helped. In, in Jeffrey Masson's book, The Assault on Truth, uh, which caused a great controversy too, he had a, he had a sentence um, where he said that uh, he, had, you know, he was the one who found all kinds of things in Freud's desk and office when he was asked to be the head of the Freud archives by Kurt Eisler. One of the things he said he found was a reference by Muriel Gardner to uh, the case of the Wolfman, where the Wolfman was, there was a a paper that was never published, um, which suggested that the Wolfman was anally raped uh, by a family member. And I got very interested in that. And since I had done so much work 
at the Library of Congress with the Severn Papers, I contacted them and I asked them if they could find this paper, this unpublished paper, and they did. No one's ever mentioned it before, except Masson, and I have it. I have a copy of it now, and I'm going to write about this. And what Freud did was to completely neglect, uh, well, no, I'll take that back. Freud didn't know about it. He was never aware of the anal rape because his analysis never went in that direction. But I'm, what I'm saying is that, that that instance of anal rape made the case of the wolfman more of a sexual trauma case than an Oedipus complex case. So to, so in that, to this day, that case, in, in my opinion, is being misinterpreted. Yeah, and, and you also talk about that with, with Dora, um, yeah, but then the, you, you say that, yeah, well, if you, I think you, well, you write in the book that if, if, if Freud's self-analysis had been more successful, yep. he would have become aware that he was also an incest survivor. Well, here's the irony of that. Freud openly, you can read this for yourself. If you, if you get the Freud, Freud fleece letters that were published originally in 1954, uh, by Anna Freud and others, you'll, he says it right in one of the letters that he was sexually abused by, by a nursemaid who, um, who was a, later identified um, as Risa Vidic. And, and uh, he asked his mother about her, and she verified that she was his nursemaid and that she was um, someone who was uh, someone who had robbed some some materials from the family, and they called the police, and she was uh, put away in jail. Um, and he never integrated that. You see, so the the very big difference between Freud and Frenzy in this regard is that Frenzy was helped to retrieve his sexual trauma with the help of Elizabeth Severin. Freud realized he was sexually traumatized, but Freud didn't integrate it into his thinking and his theory, but Forenzi did. That's an enormous difference. So Forenzi used the fact that he discovered that he had sexual trauma in his background to to understand the uh, the the actual instance of sexual trauma in, a, in an analysis of uh, background and then used it in his his clinical practice in developing trauma analysis and in his theory the confusion of tongues paper is all about incest and treating understanding that incest and, and sexual trauma is an important part of uh, human behavior and that it needed to be treated, and um, yeah, the, the the power of of the confusion of tongues, and um, it's yeah, it's, it's just uh, remarkable. And the, there's a whole story about the confusion of tongues. You know, I'm gonna I'm writing a book about that 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 idea alone right now. You know, I'm 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 finishing the fifth chapter, the confusion of tongues was seen by Eric Fromm, 
as being one of the most important papers in the history of psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. Yet, Freud and um, Ernest Jones and, um, and a whole group of other traditional analysts did everything they could do to suppress, to suppress the presentation and publication of the Confusion of Tongues paper. So, and they were successful. They didn't pre- prevent Frenzy from giving the paper at the 12th International Congress in 1932, but they prevented it from coming out in an English translation. So it wasn't until 1949 that Michael Ballant, Ferenczi's successor to, to the Hungarian Psychoanalytic uh, Society, translated it into English. And of course, so, at, that, at that time, I think that um, you know, Freud turns his back on Ferenczi, and Severn thinks that that contributed to his death. Yes, she did. Yes, in in in, uh, in the Eisler interview, it was very um, dramatic to read this. I you know I I um, read the Eisler, Kurt Eisler interviewed uh, Elizabeth Severn in 1952 in December of 1952 as part of the material that he collected in order to start the Freud archives, and in it she says. And other people have said this too. Judith Dupont has said this, and Michael Ballant has said that when Frenzy went to Freud in August of 1932, just prior to giving the paper in September of that same year in Wiesbaden at the conference, Freud was so angry at Ferenczi presenting the paper to him in order to get Freud's approval and and to get any um, understanding uh, of what he what Freud thought was the meaning of the paper, that when Ferenczi went to say goodbye to Freud, Freud turned his back on literally turned his back on him and refused to shake his hand. It was such an emotional trauma that people like Severin and Ballant and DuPont think it it caused Ferenczi, it, it just caused him to lose some of his vitality. And, and uh, although he died of pernicious anemia in May of 1933, there are some people like the ones I've mentioned who felt that he he lost something of himself from that Freud rejection. Mm-hmm. And in the Eisler interview, the way what you've pulled out of it and what, what Severn says, you consider her, her analysis with uh, Ferenczi and the mutual analysis to have been uh, beneficial to her. She goes on and, and continues her practice. Oh, I, I don't think there's any doubt about it. See, that's another thing that the Moroda paper, although I had, you know, I have, very positive feelings about Moroda as a, a, and her contribution to countertransference and out the understanding of countertransference. I think what people didn't understand, and maybe I understand it because I had all this material from the Elizabeth Severn paper uh, papers that other people didn't have, or 
that I didn't have the prejudice about Severin that other people have. It was very clear that in the Eisler interview, Severin herself said that she thought that Forenzi was a very fine analyst and had did a very good job with her, and she had no complaint about him. And if you think about it, uh, she left him in 1933 um, uh, um, because he was in failing health. It was a premature termination of an analysis. She went on to live till 1959, I believe. Uh, and she had she went back eventually to New York City and had a, a, a successful analytic practice. She had relationships uh, with friends and her daughter, and she led an active life. She was, as far as I can understand, never hospitalized again and functioned at a high level. Now, isn't, what is, what is Freud's definition of a successful analysis? To love and to work. Am I correct? That's correct. So she was, she had loving and and meaningful relationships with others, her daughter and friends and colleagues, and she worked at a high level. So isn't that, couldn't, shouldn't that be considered a successful analysis? Yes, and and you rewrite in the book that there's a letter um, Karen Horney sends yes. her daughter to her. Yes, that's right. So you got a colleague referral, but it's and, interesting about. I'm sorry, I just want to say that Anna Freud thought highly of. I have a letter in the book too, a copy of the letter that Anna Freud wrote to Elizabeth Seren, uh, saying that uh, she hoped um, um, that she would of. Uh, uh, Speaking of the friendship between the two of them. Yeah, so very important. You, it's interesting when you mention you know, her relationship with, with Margaret, and the dancer. But it, Margaret was critical at one point of her mother being in treatment with Forenzi. She wrote letters. Yes, she was. Uh, there was a period, now don't forget, in therapeutic regression, in, in the idea of going back and trying to un, um, uh, uncover your, your traumatic past, there are very difficult periods when you're going to be reliving your past. You're going to be reliving the traumas. That is a period of turmoil. You're going to be emotionally, un- you're going to feel emotionally unstable. You're going to remember all the horrible things that happened to you. And your functioning may not be as meaningful as it is once you work that through. So there was a period when Margaret Severin was not in good shape. And it was during that period when she was uncovering her traumatic past. And I think what happened was that her daughter, Margaret, was aware of that because she was writing to her about it. And she got angry at Forenzi as if he was hurting her, his, her mother, not helping her. And Severn wrote... Um three different books. The, the last one in 33, you quote uh, extensively. I think that those should, at least the, the third one, should be should be read relative well, to Well, you know, the third one, Peter Rudinsky, who's a uh, 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 part, you know, we have now what's called the International Sandel Forenzi Network. And it's, a, 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 and it's a group of people who are interested and dedicated and do 
writing and scholarship and work in in uh, in about Ferenczi and using his frame of reference. And um, he has he put out a new edition of the 1933 book, you know, the psychology of the self. So that can be read now in the, you know, uh, it's, that, that'd be a, an interesting book to read for people interested. In yeah. Well, the, yeah, the passages that you uh, quote in the book are quite, quite beautiful and um, really sort of meaningful. And you talk about Severn, I don't know if this is your term or her term, but the idea of a therapeutic presence and your rejection of the idea of the blank screen. No, it's very interesting where I got that term. Um, I got that term because Margaret Severin, her daughter, used it. Margaret, in one of her letters to her mother, she described her mother as having a therapeutic presence in relationship, uh, and that, that her mother was a very successful therapist as a result of that. I think it's a very important term, a very important idea. It's just being used now. There's a group of people working on the issue of therapeutic presence. What is it, what is, what is it in the interaction between an, uh, a therapist and a client, an analyst and an analysand that makes itself or lends itself to having a therapeutic interaction. And so I think this is a very, we, we need much more thought and, and work on this idea of a therapeutic presence. Because I, I, there's no question in my mind that some people have it and some people do not have it. Well, with the idea of, say, a therapeutic presence and the mutual analysis, um, you, you write also personally in the book that you you've, your experience of working with incest survivors. What have you taken from mutual analysis in your work? Well, I think of uh, there's two two ways to look at it. I myself have been, if you want to talk about it in this way, I've I've been in mutual analysis with um, three three of my colleagues. Not 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 analysands, but colleagues. So I I'm presently uh, in mutual analysis with a, a one of my dearest and longest friends, who himself is not a psychoanalyst; he's a psychotherapist. But we talk every week uh, for a two hours, a two hour session, and we and we talk to each other about what's going on in our existence, both personal and professional, and we try to help each other. And it's been enormously helpful, enormously helpful. And we're gonna, we're gonna bring something out about this. I don't know when, because I have so much other stuff to write about. But I think uh, the idea of being in a mutual analysis with a colleague is a very useful a meaningful idea, because it's very different than being in a therapeutic encounter with a designated uh, therapist or analyst. Uh, then the other thing that can be taken away is that the idea of a two-person experience 
which Frenzy pioneered with Severin, needs is being incorporated into many uh, uh, alternate perspectives. Like re- I consider myself a relational analyst um, from the tradition that Stephen Mitchell developed in the 1980s. And um, relational analysis does see Forensi as, as, as the origin of, of the frame of reference. And that a, a psychoanalytic encounter should be considered a human experience between two people, both of whom needs to and should contribute to understanding of what is happening and to analyze what's going on. It's not just the, uh, the idea of an analyst analyzing an analysand. It's the idea that two people who are doing this experience need to understand it, contribute to it, and are open to changing it. I think that is a perfect place for us to, to stop. Um, again, we've been talking to Dr. Arnold Rackman about his book, Elizabeth Severn, The Evil Genius of Psychoanalysis, uh, published 2018 by Rutledge, part of their Psychoanalytic Inquiry book series. Dr. Rackman, thank you so much for joining the program today. Thank you very much for inviting me, and I enjoyed talking to you very much.